<laughs> well, all right. You know what we are to do right now? Like this very second? Yeah. yeah. Who's, who's going to do that? Good evening, Saints! Tonight is going to be fun. We know that because it's been a hellacious day, but it's about to get heavenly. (laughs) We're going to finish Jeremiah 23 this evening. Next week, if you're reading ahead, and you better be, we're going to cover chapters 24 and 25 as a unit. One of the reasons that we elected to spend time this evening in the remainder of Jeremiah 23 is that the context couldn't be any more pertinent to our church body right now. As you're all aware, we're in the process of walking through seven remembers in the book of Deuteronomy. Y'all are aware of that, aren't you? This week, everyone is focusing on remembering the divine ways in which the Lord your God has led you. Have y'all been focusing on that? Yes. Okay. Tonight, you'll see that Jeremiah... He stood in the very council of God. And uh, it's in contrast to those that are standing in their own council, the imaginations of their mind, their own human reasoning. We believe that the reason the Holy Spirit has chosen to arrange our study of Jeremiah and its progression to coincide with the fourth remember in the book of Deuteronomy, remember how the Lord has led you, is because he wants to encourage you. We didn't plan it. We couldn't have made that happen. It just did. And uh, we think that the resounding word that you should walk away with tonight, and sometimes you have a way of hearing what we are not saying, so I want to make this very, very clear, is that you can stand in the counsel of God. So why don't somebody say that for me? Just stand up and say it. If you hear something other than that, then you're working out of your own imagination and you need to repent. Because the point of our meeting tonight, just like Sunday, is that you can hear from God. You can be led by Him. You shouldn't be hearing anything other than that. And if you are, you're listening to the wrong source. You are right now chronicling the ways in which the Lord your God has led you. This secures you as a son. It builds you. There should be nobody in this room that cannot chronicle the ways in which the Lord has led you. Of course, all of us can make a list of things that he has not led us in. That is not your homework. Your homework is the ways that the Lord has led you because that will save your life. The confidence that you can hear from God will save your life. We're going to pick up in verse 9 tonight. And you can imagine we would love to recap everything that we've done up to this point. 
we kind of like it, which is why we've done it, but we don't have the time to do that. So instead of reviewing our previous week's content, we're asking you to remember only one thing. The first eight verses of this chapter, which we're not going through again, they speak of a deliverance that is of such magnitude that it is actually promised that nobody would even remember or speak of their initial deliverance anymore. Amen. That the transformation of the nation in the end would be so great, nobody would be speaking about their initial deliverance. I have one word to say about that. Moreover. Moreover. See, your transformation, what is happening in your life now and in the days to come, it can be so great that you will stop telling 20-year-old stories that are relatively powerless. Oh, come on now. Because what you're standing in right now is so transformative that it's not even worth having to speak about things decades old. That is the result that we're aiming for tonight. Let's pray again, and this time, I'm going to do it. Mighty God, I thank you so much for the chance to share your word. Lord, we love your congregation. We love your sons in this room. Lord, we believe that your power will be so manifest in their lives that we are intoxicated by it. We yearn for you, and we ask you to come and bless this room tonight with a greater understanding of your counsel, of your word, and of your transforming power inside of us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, we get to start reading in verse 9. Miss Jennifer's going to read verse 9 through 40, which will be our text all evening. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All of my bones tremble. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine, because of the Lord and his holy words. The land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land lies parched, and the pastures in the desert are withered. The prophets follow an evil, evil course and use their power unjustly. Both prophet and priest are godless. Even in my temple, I find their wickedness, declares the Lord. Therefore, their path will become slippery. They will be banished to darkness, and they will fall. I will bring disaster on them in the year they are punished, declares the Lord. Among the prophets of Samaria, I saw this repulsive thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. And among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wickedness. They are all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says concerning the prophets. I will make them eat bitter food and drink poisoned water, because from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has spread throughout the land. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord or seen to see or hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? See, the storm of the Lord will burst 
out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has fully accomplished the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you will understand it clearly. I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. I have heard the prophets say, who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in their hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy delusions of their own minds? They think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my name, just as their fathers forgot my name through Baal worship. Let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what has a straw to do with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces? Therefore, declares the Lord, I am against the prophets who steal from one another words supposedly for me. Yes, declares the Lord, I am against the prophets who wag their own tongues and yet declare the Lord declares. Indeed, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. They tell them and lead my people astray with their reckless lies. Yet I did not send or appoint them. They do not benefit these people in the least, declares the Lord. When these people or a prophet or a priest ask you, what is the oracle of the Lord? Say to them, what oracle? I will forsake you, declares the Lord. If a prophet or a priest or anyone else claims this is the oracle of the Lord, I will punish that man and his household. This is what each of you keep on saying to his friend or relative. What is the Lord's answer, or what has the Lord spoken? But you must not mention the oracle of the Lord again, because every man's own word becomes his oracle, and so you distort the word of the living God, the Lord Almighty, our God. This is what you keep saying to a prophet. What is the Lord's answer to you, or what has the Lord spoken? Although you claim this is the oracle of the Lord, this is what the Lord says. You use the words. This is the oracle of the Lord, even though I told you that you must not claim. This is the oracle of the Lord. Therefore, I will surely forget you and cast you out of my presence along with the city I gave to you and your fathers. I will bring upon you everlasting disgrace, everlasting shame that will not be forgotten. Come on. So we want you to take special note of this chapter and the timing of what God is doing in our church. After a message like yesterday, us chronicling the things that, that God has led us into supernaturally, we get to be in a chapter where we see a man who is surrounded by a famine of God's word, and yet he himself is not in a famine. He is an oasis because he's standing in the counsel of God. Amen. I can't help to think that we can learn something from these two extremities, between where Jeremiah was, what he was surrounded with, and what we are surrounded with. We're surrounded by men who are not in a famine from God's word, and yet we get to apply the principles that we see Jeremiah doing so well in our midst today. So, Linton, if you will, let's pick up 
in verse 9 and get it. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine. Wow. Because the Lord, because of the Lord and his holy word. So I want you to remember what we shared and where we ended last week. Last week we read Jeremiah 23, 1 through 8. And Jeremiah is prophesying about a coming king. He's prophesying about promises of an extraordinary future. But now you see Jeremiah immediately after that extraordinary future, he has to clinch with the present darkness. He's up on the mountain of God getting revelation. And as soon as he gets out of worship, he looks at what's all around him. And he says his heart is broken within me. He has to clinch with that darkness regarding the state of the accepted leadership in Israel. There's bad leadership going on, right? <laughs> and he's not accepted. They are accepted. Now, it's important to note that two realities are present in nearly every situation. Say two realities. Two realities. The first is that chaos and sin are prevalent, but the second is that the presence of God is also present. Amen. This Come goes on. all the way back to Genesis where the Spirit of God is hovering over the chaos of the waters. Look, I'm going to read Acts 2.14, and you're going to start to see some similarities in what the apostles uh, experienced in the book of Acts. I'm going to read it, and Nick is going to expound on it. Acts 2, verse 14 says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Gentiles, nope, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning, and we're not in Texas. <laughs> so... In verse 9 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, I'm like a drunken man. I'm like a man overcome with wine. You guys can see this correlation between that part of this scripture and Acts chapter 2, 14 and 15. Yeah. These men are not drunk. As you suppose, it's only 9 in the morning. You see, Peter and the apostles are standing in an environment very similar to the environment that Jeremiah was standing in in his day. It means that the vast majority of the leaders in Israel were actually responsible for the crucifixion of the Son of God. And we've made uh, a plethora of parallels between Jeremiah and Jesus throughout these weeks in the past. The others were so filled with the power and the presence of God that men actually made the mistake of thinking that they were drunk. Think about how funny this is in a way. They're looking on and they're seeing the manifestation of the power of God and they're mistaking it for something that is not normal. Well, of course it's not normal. Yeah. They're filled with the very spirit, the very presence of God Almighty. Yeah. You see, we want to actually make uh, an, an acute observation about this scripture. Jeremiah is trembling in his bones over the prevalence of sin in the nation that he loved. But... He was also filled with power because of the holy words of God. Yeah. You see those two uh, items juxtaposed to each other? Yeah. He's trembling because there's sin in the nation of God. But he's also filled with power because of God's holiness 
and the holy words that are at work inside of him. We would like to take a moment and remind you of a favorite song in this house, in the house of LCM. In fact, it's been a favorite song since the time of Asaph. Do we have a slide? Then the Lord awoke like one who had been asleep. He awoke like a warrior who had been drunk with wine. And he beat back his enemies. He gave them over to perpetual scorn. You see, the character of God in Psalm 78, it's like he awoke in a drunken stupor. You you guys see that? Like a warrior who had been drunk with wine. Whether we're talking about the Lord, whether we're talking about his spirit, or men who are filled with the very spirit of God, to the rest of the world, this can look shockingly like somebody who is not acting in their normal state. No matter how you personally perceive Jeremiah's words about his state, the end result will be what Psalm 78 declares here. Thanks, there are a few associations that you should pick up from this. When a man has God's holy words, it does not matter what circumstance he is standing in, he's participating in the victory that will come through those holy words. Come on. Jeremiah understood what the future outcome was. Now, often in scripture, victory is associated with wine and rejoicing as a result of what God has done. Now, in mild association with that, I want to read to you another scripture, but in truth, it's mostly because the church world has zero positive associations with alcohol. And I wanted you to read another verse that shows you how God views it in association with victory. Mm. It's Zechariah 9, 14 through 15. We have the ESV on the board first. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. Over them is Judah and Ephraim. That's who's in reference. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bolt, drenched like the corners of the altar. Now, as we pick up in the Nazbe here, beginning at the imagery that he's speaking about them participating in a victory that is so great, it's as if they're drunk on his presence in it. Zechariah 9, it appears largely the same. And then as we go down to 15, the Lord of hosts will defend them and they will devour and trample on the sling stones and they will drink and be boisterous as with wine. <laughs> the idea is that they've participated in this to the point where their inhibitions are gone. They're rejoicing. They're speaking loud about what God is doing as they are crushing the enemies of God. And like men who have drinking enough to no longer be concerned about what everyone thinks about it, they're letting the world know. If that seems strange to you, the reason that we're going through that is it's easy to read Jeremiah's statement as a very negative statement. I actually don't think that it is. I think it's a normal feeling when you are under the influence of a supernatural spirit to almost feel disassociated with what's going on around you. And charismatics love Pentecost. You're like, oh man, what a glorious day. You forget that they're standing facing imprisonment, they're facing death sentence, they're facing the confiscation of their property, and the one thing that they have is like drunk men, 
They were so full of the Spirit, they could care less. I would like to see us, uh, however you think about it, become more sober to the Spirit of the Lord or more drunken to the world. I don't care what it takes. Losing all concern, caution and and, and reckless abandonment for the world is what we're after. And Jeremiah is in that place because he has no choice. He's God's man. And there seem to be relatively few others. And so he did describe himself as a drunken man. And that's not necessarily a negative thing in this sense. Let's pick up in verse 10. The land is full of adultery. Because of the curse, the land lies parched. And the pastures in the desert are written. The prophets follow an evil course and use their power unjustly. You know, this is an interesting verse. And it would be easy to simply read over it and get to the next one. But as far back as Genesis 3, the land was cursed because of sin. But it was for the sake of mankind that the land itself was cursed. In other words, the land would serve a purpose. In the curse that came on the land, it would drive man towards his understanding of need for divine deliverance and help. Look at this verse in the King James Version. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I have commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. See, he does not want you to be able to sin and not see any consequence. So the consequence that is occurring in the land is like looking at a mirror and you get to see a picture of what is actually happening in you that you cannot see. This is a truth that Jeremiah 4.27 has already announced. Who in here wants to read today? Rob, why don't you take Jeremiah Uh, do 28 for me, too. You can always read until I stop you. That's a good plan. Therefore, the earth will mourn and the heavens above grow dark. Because I have spoken and will not repent, I have decided and will not turn back. Do you see that the whole land would be ruined and it would even have cosmic and global consequences because of the sin of the people of God? Yeah. That looks like such a terrible judgment. But I want you to understand it's for our sake. If everything continues wonderfully while you were doing terribly, you don't notice it. It is meant to cause you to wake up. It's important to remember that the Torah, for instance, Leviticus 18, it always ties the condition of the people to the condition of the land that they're in. This would mean that any average Israelite could learn about his own spiritual condition from looking at the condition of the land, which is the point of verse 10. Now, the NASB and the ESV, they actually have a more accurate conveying of a Hebrew thought here. I want you to remember, as Justin picks up for us, that the land itself is in covenant with God. It's God, the people, and the land that are in a covenant with each other. Do you all remember that? Okay, listen to the wording as Justin walks you through the way that NASB and ESV say this because it's different than the way you see it on your screen in the NIV. 
Okay, in the ESV, Jeremiah 23.10 says, For the land is full of adulterers because of the curse the land mourns. The land is mourning. The NIV had used the phrase, the land is parched, and that was probably an accurate statement. But the Hebrew more specifically conveys that the land was mourning. This is Hebrew dynamic language to say that the land itself is doing something that a person would do. This is a response of the sin of the people. And because of that, there is an effect on the surroundings uh, of the people, the real, land. Real quick, have you ever had the thought, well, at least that sin only affected me? Ooh, no, no. The land itself is mourning and the drought that they're experiencing is the result of their condition. You never hear these things connected in preaching anymore. In fact, a pastor can be laughed out of town if he suggests that the reason there was a national calamity is the sin of the people. It's considered like, how could you say that? The Bible says that. And uh, the NASB, it essentially says the same thing. For the land is full of adulterers, for the land mourns because of the curse. The idea here again is that the land is experiencing something because of the sin of the people. This is no different than you know that you messed up, you sinned against the Lord, and you didn't quite get it right after that, and then you start noticing things going haywire in your house, your job, and everywhere else around you. The Lord is trying to get the attention of his people through this. He's trying to show them that even though they may try to hide it from the Lord, it is affecting the area all around them, and God holds them responsible. Thankfully, the answer to those problems is to get right with God. Then everything else around you becomes in right shalom with God. Let's clear something up for you. Not every sickness comes from a spiritual attack. But that doesn't mean that there are no sicknesses that come from a spiritual attack. Not every negative thing that happens to you is the result of your sin. But it doesn't mean that your sin cannot cause negative things to happen to you. We need to get out of our elementary school understanding and start to become more awake to what is happening around us. If your fields are on fire and you smell burning barley, it might be because God's been trying to get your attention and you would not listen. And today, we have no appetite for anybody even pointing that out. How dare you say that? What we really hate is the judgment of God. And we need to learn to love God's working, whether it feels positive in the moment or not, because we are sons. And this is how he gets our attention. So let's make another observation about the last half of verse 10. It says that the prophets follow an evil course and use their power unjustly. That is a shocking statement. Men in position as prophets are following an evil course. They're they're walking down a road that is leading to more and more evil, and they're using their power unjustly. Do you think prophets have power? Absolutely. Look at what's going on with the entire Christian world and these Trump prophecies. What's going on here is there is improper use of position and authority. Now, It seems to be the most prominent reason for what is happening here. For the land experiencing this curse and mourning. It's this improper use of position and authority. And there is no worse use of authority 
than numbering people to the impending judgment of God. Numbing. 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 You think of the worst kind of spiritual abuse that you can have as somebody was ugly to you. No, the worst kind of spiritual abuse that you could ever suffer is somebody telling you that you are okay when you're not. Trust me, you can take an insult, and if you're doing right with God, his spirit will testify with your spirit. But the worst thing that can happen is you're sitting in a state of deception, and somebody says, dude, you're doing just fine, because you may never notice that. Come on, Jeremiah 12, verse 4, says exactly what pastor is talking about says how long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered because those who live in it are wicked the animals and birds have perished wow it's like their sin was affecting every part of their society wonder if they connected the dots nope moreover (laughs) you know this is one of those times when moreover is in a negative sense Moreover, the people are saying, so this is happening, the land is affected, but moreover, in a negative kind of way, the people are saying he will not see what happens to us. They are actually making a conscious decision to reject the fact that the Lord can see everything that they're doing, that the Lord can comprehend, he understands, he has a watchful eye on his people, they're choosing to reject that. This is the consistent problem. And the leaders of Jeremiah's day. Come on. They doled any fear of God in the people by constantly assuring them. They said stuff like, hey, man, it's okay. You're good. It's going to be fine. God's grace covers that. that that's going to be forgiven. It's okay. Just keep walking forward. The Lord's going to be fine with what you've done. The parallels to our time, church, are, are simply outstanding in this area. This should affect a way for you personally. Should affect the way that you are a husband to your wife. Come on, husbands. This should directly affect the way that you pastor your home. The way that you and your wife are parents to your children. Even the way that pastors are pastors of their congregation. With the fact in the back of your head at all times is that the Lord is watching what we are doing. He has a steady eye on everything that is going on around us. We cannot trick and deceive ourselves into thinking, oh, he's not going to see that or pacify our own consciences to say, oh, what I did is just fine. We have the gift of repentance for a reason in this house. It would be foolish for us not to take advantage of that. We are learning how to repent well in the house of God. We are going to talk about teshuva here in a few verses, but we have that gift here. We need to start taking advantage of it as much as we possibly can because we want to be walking rightly in the house of God. Okay, to pick an absurd example because we're, we're trying to help you engage with this text. You've heard it said many times like, I messed this up and that up and this up and that up, but praise God for the blood of Jesus. (laughs) And while that can be a very true and edifying statement, let's put it into context. I lost my temper and I punched Christy in the face and she now has a broken orbital socket, but praise God for the blood of Jesus. It does not remove. (laughs) It does not remove the consequence of what has happened And it's not praise God for the blood of Jesus alone. It's praise God for the blood of Jesus, not that I'm forgiven, 
but that I can be transformed and not be that kind of man anymore. I think the way that this is most commonly quoted in the church world today is praise God because somebody else was murdered. I, I, I has no responsibility or bearing on me instead of praise God. There is the opportunity to do better. And what we need to focus on is recognizing what's going on around us and seeing the opportunity to be transformed as a glorious blessing. Come on. Not just praise God. I was forgiven. Praise God, I can be transformed. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, Brother Lenton. Get verse 11. Both prophets and priests are godless. Even in my temple, I find their wickedness, declares the Lord. Both prophets and priests are godless. Look, you can insert any modern-day equivalent you would like. This is pastor and elders. This is pastor and the worship leader. This is a shocking statement to the original audience. The guys that are supposed to be representing God and speaking for God are wicked. It would have been even more shocking to realize that the people who were accepting offerings for the atonement of sin were wicked in and of themselves. Wow. The priests were wicked. They were the arbitrators between God and men. Look, it would have been unthinkable that they brought the wickedness into the temple, but they did. This verse says it, and it's expounded upon in Ezekiel's writings. Now, Ezekiel is a rough contemporary to when Jeremiah is saying these things. Not year for year, but the same general time frame and same issue of this generation. I'm going to hand out a couple of passages just to give a flavor of what the prophet said. Paul Rosales, we get Ezekiel 8, 5 through 11. Cho, get Ezekiel 8, 16 through 18. Then, uh, who wants Malachi? Spencer, get Malachi 3, 14 through 18. Go ahead and read Ezekiel verse 5 through 11 when you have it. Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. All right, we're not teaching on Ezekiel, so we're going to keep moving. But you think of an idol as something that a Hindu has up, and it clearly says an idol of jealousy. Ooh. Never seen that in the Christian body. Keep reading, brother. Thanks. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here? Things that will drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see things that are even more detestable. That's then like saying... How much more detestable. <laughs> Keep going. Then he brought me to the entrance of, to the court. Ooh. I looked. I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and looked. And I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals, and all the idols of the house of Israel. In front of them stood 70 elders of the house of Israel, and Jeazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. So saints, once again, we're not teaching on Ezekiel tonight. But the idea is that these idol idolatrous practices this idolatrous intentions towards God and the people. They were numbing them to sin. Yeah, there was sin present 
in the priesthood all the way to the temple. It was so pervasive that it affected every leader, all of the elders, even in the most holy place. And God was grieved about the matter. And how was it revealed? Well, there's a righteous man, Ezekiel, and a burning man that shows up in Ezekiel 8 who goes and shows him what's happening. And it still required the digging down to get to it. Saints, do not cover things in your life and make others dig down to get to them. It's your job to peel back the layers of your heart, to ask the Lord to search you, to say, I am your son. Help me see where there are idols that I don't see. It should not take a lone righteous man led by an angel to come and dig those things out of your heart. If it happens, praise God that it happens. But that's really our job to dig down in the soil of our heart and expose those things. And I want to tell you a secret. If you will do it in your prayer closet, then nobody else will ever have to do it for you. But where it's hidden, God loves his nation enough to expose it. And he loves us enough to expose it. This is a part of being treated as a son. Mm. If you will not cultivate the soil of your heart, he will put stimuli around you that help you cultivate the soil of your heart. You get so many years of that, and then he, he cuts down the tree at the root. That's, that's what happens. And I believe that because we're here tonight, you're here to make sure that there's not idolatry in your heart, to learn that you can stand in the presence Amen. of God. Yes. Jeremiah is having to stand in a situation where he's relatively alone in that sense. Look around and say, thank you, God, for my neighbors. Thank you, God, for my neighbors. Look at Ezekiel 8, 16 through 18. Is that a horrifying statement? You know what's more horrifying is that we have no idea what it means in general to put a branch to your nose. And you can't have any personal relationship with the idea of putting your back to the temple of the Lord and praying to the east. And yet these things, they occur in the lives of believers all of the time. Has there never been a time this week when you turned your back You're not focused on what the Lord is focused on because you did what you wanted to do? Is there not a time when instead of the sweet-smelling incense that is a life sacrificially offered to the Lord, you decided to enjoy the aroma of what is around you instead of of the heavens? We have a way of excusing this kind of idolatry in our life, and I think it's more pervasive now than it was then. They didn't have cable television. They didn't have Netflix. They didn't have all of the things that we do where we turn our back to what God might be directing us towards and run after something he never directed us towards. 
There is a serious warning for the people of God here. And the message of Jeremiah is when this kind of evil becomes this pervasive, then wrath becomes unavoidable. One of the reasons we're covering the book of Jeremiah is I actually believe wrath is unavoidable for this nation. And as bad as the people are that are running our country right now, the Christian world is far worse. Biden can't read a teleprompter, that's true. But what is sad is the number of men that have falsely prophesied Trump's second turn and sent it to everybody's inboxes and you've repeated it and talked about it. And the truth is, it was never born out of the heart, mind, or will of God. It was the imagination of a pillow prophet simply saying what he thought people wanted to hear. And now, nobody's accountable for it. And that's one small example. One small example. Both Malachi and the coming chapter, chapter 24, they're going to show us that God will make a distinction that not everybody in Israel has done this. Justin's going to take us through Malachi where you can see the distinction, and then next week in chapter 24, we're going to find out there are good figs in this group. And some of what God is doing is to protect the ones that actually want to agree with God. He wants to make a distinction in our lives. For, For him to do that, we must first make a distinction in our own lives. You need to accurately be able to see where you must be reformed and ask for his transformation. That's nobody else's job to point out to you. For instance, if we preach one of the most encouraging messages that can be preached and you were discouraged by it, I wanna tell you, you have a real problem. It's not a problem with the preaching. The real problem is something is embedded in your heart that, It's like when a man walks in and says, honey, your hair looks beautiful today. And she says, you didn't like it the day before? (laughs) Nothing's wrong with what the husband said. Something is wrong with with the heart of the bride. And only she can actually fix that. Church, we have to fix some problems in this house because you are sons of God that are being led and are being transformed, but it requires you to face what must be transformed. Amen. Spence, pick up a Malachi 3.14. You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So we got to pause right there. you got to imagine that wickedness is so pervasive that the lines have been blurred. Now, I know uh, we don't preach a whole lot on keeping commands in this church, right? Or maybe you think that's a Jewish concept. Think to yourself, it's so bad that there are people actually saying it's futile to serve God. It's futile to carry out the requirements that is preached in the body that I implanted in. Or I don't trust the word that is coming to this house enough to actually follow it through. And then out of that idea looking at those who are arrogant and saying they're more blessed than than those of us who are hearing the words of the Lord. That is a bad situation. But look what happens in verse 16. In in the situation that is happening here, wrath is unavoidable. When those lines become blurry like this, when we start calling the arrogant blessed, 
Wrath is unavoidable. But look what happens in verse 16. Then those who fear the Lord spoke of one another. Amen. Amen. Not those who were perfect already. Not those who had it all together. Those that had a fear of God. A beginning of wisdom of sorts to actually adhere to what God is saying, to trust what he is saying, a fear of God, they begin to get together and fellowship a little bit. They begin to gather and mention what the Lord is speaking, maybe remembering what God had done in the past. And then look what the Lord does to that. The Lord paid attention and heard them. Oh, come on. Does God hear me? Yes, when you fear God and you gather together. Keep going. Man, that's good news, isn't it? Remember, this is in a situation where wrath is unavoidable. And then in his presence, a scroll of of remembrance is written with names. Verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possessions. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between one who serves God and one that does not serve God. Look, the current generation in Jeremiah's day will undergo judgment. Both those that serve God and both those that do not serve God. If you think serving God means no judgment, you're wrong. In this day, both that serve God and don't will have to go through the judgment. But even in the judgment, men will have the opportunity to side with God. Amen. How preposterous is it for Christians to say, no judgment, peace, we love, all of that stuff, when the judgment is actually an opportunity for a distinction to be made yes. in God's house. Yes. Each of us, now, we reside in a nation that will face unavoidable judgment, and it's coming upon the whole world. Yes. Judgment begins with the house of God, but each of us now has the opportunity to make a distinction in that we get to side with God's word, which happens to be a double-edged sword. You cut with it, but it also cuts you. But you get to side with God's word now. Make a distinction now. That way, whenever this time comes for the Lord to make up his treasured possession, you're already already written down in his book. Amen. Come on. Lord, increase our distinction in this house. Yes. Oh, we need it. We need a distinction. We need an increased line between the godly and the godless that are out there, we need that line inside of our lives. Can you continue in verse 12 for us? Therefore, their path will become slippery. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on right there, Lintone. Their path will become slippery? Then what is that? Who are we talking about? Oh, yeah, we're talking about the prophet and the priest. Those two guys are still the, the subject matter of this verse. So we're talking about prophet and priest, and it says... Their path will become slippery. So if it's becoming slippery, then what was it before? Well, maybe it was a firm path. Maybe it was a good path. Maybe it was a righteous path. But as a result of their actions, their path is becoming slippery. Hey, I I came from from a denominational church. A denominational church who was so married to the corrupt doctrine that... Uh, it was an, an every week kind of occurrence, a pulpit kind of occurrence to say, hey, grace covers everything. Uh, you're good to go. And as long as you made that good confession of faith, then nothing can ever shake you from that. Mm. Well, look at verse 12. 
their path will become slippery. What is that? Finish that verse, and we're going to get, get into that a little bit more. They will be banished to darkness, and there they will fall. Goodness gracious. I will bring disaster on them in the year they are punished, declares the Lord. Backslidden. Huh. A backslidden people. The very people that were priests and prophets. Those that were expected to be the closest to the Lord. The ones who knew the Father the greatest, but they are the ones that... Their path is becoming slippery and they're backsliding at a rapid pace. We also found an interesting note. We were talking to a, a disciple earlier this week. And that word slippery is, is quite an intriguing word. <laughs> I think we have a slide for you. Man, if anybody can pronounce that, I don't know what I'd do. But if you can't speak in tongues yet after trying to say that, you certainly will. Halak, halak, bot, something like that. Yeah. It, it means slipperiness, obviously. <laughs> Flattery describes uncertain people on treacherous paths of false prophets. There we go. Jeremiah 23, 12. And hated enemies. Psalm 35, 6. In a political sense, here we go. Here we go. It refers to seizing power by intrigue. Anybody recognize that word intrigue? We're going to get there in Daniel. Flattery and hypocrisy. So in Daniel 11 and verse 21, we have a scripture that is describing the nature of the final Antichrist, the Antichrist to come. Daniel 11:21 says, He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. We're speaking about the final Antichrist here. He will invade the kingdom. When its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Wow. There's our word in tongues again. Intrigue. That's the same word that we find <laughs> in the 12th verse of Jeremiah 23. Slippery. So what are we saying here? Well, what we're doing is we're correlating that word slippery, the path of the prophet and the priest. It actually has a deeper meaning than just slippery. What if it also means intrigue? Something interested them to the point where their path was slippery and they backslid towards that false interest. Oh, wow. What if we're talking about something that was flattering them too much to hate or detect their own sin and so their path became slippery and they fell backward? What if we're talking about a hypocrisy? Like priests and prophets, guys that are supposed to be representing God's <coughs> name, God Almighty, the Father of heaven and earth, but they're, what they're speaking, what they're preaching, does not line up with the way that they're living. And so the firm path that they once were walking on, it's mm. becoming slippery. Yeah. They're backsliding. Look at Daniel 11, 33 and 34, and this is another occurrence of the same word. Check this out. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help. And many who are not sincere will join them. Not sincere is the same word. It's that slippery word again. People who are not sincere are going to co-mingle with the true righteous people of God. How important is it to renew our distinction in this house? How important is it to understand what the word says and to speak it in truth and to not lead a life 
that is full of intrigue into other things, not lead a life that is full of flattering ourselves too much to hate or detect our own sin and to, to uh, go away from the repentance that could be ours? How important is it to live a life free and devoid of hypocrisy in our own lives, knowing the truth and allowing the Lord to transform us in order to set us free from that hypocritical lifestyle? We are in a season of transformation, church. Amen. The path below our feet doesn't have to become slippery. It can become even more firm as we run away from this hypocritical Amen. lifestyle and we run into the arms of the transforming Father that we have. Amen. Let's continue in verse 13. Among the prophets of Samaria, I saw this repulsive thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. Pause there for me, Lincoln. As we pick up in 14... Key in on this. I saw a repulsive thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. Now catch 14. And among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen something horrible. Repulsive just became horrible. Keep going. They Ooh. commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wickedness. They are all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like all right. Now, like we mentioned with moreover earlier, this is one of those instances where a Calvay Comer argument, <laughs> a how much more argument, oh. being applied in a negative sense. Okay. What's going on is he's recounting what Samaria has done and said that it was repulsive, that they led the people astray. But how much worse or how much more was the horrible thing that Jerusalem had done when they led people astray. They did it by living a lie and committing adultery while still proclaiming God's name. By doing so, they strengthened the hands of evildoers. Now here you see him referred to as Sodom and Gomorrah. Revelation 11.8 likens Jerusalem to Sodom and Egypt. These statements are a characteristic of a temporary state. Oh, that's They're descriptors of what this city, this generation, is behaving like. Of course, God knows Jerusalem is not Egypt. He created the heavens and the earth, and he can use a map, I promise. But he's saying, you're acting like these guys. But the thing for you to remember, just like so many other instances in Jeremiah, he's addressing their current condition, but it will not be their final condition. Zechariah 12, 8 through 9 says something that I want to read to you. But I think at this moment it's good for us to meditate on it. To begin to feel what we're aiming at. Okay? Saints, look at me for just a moment. There's a bit of a weary fog in here that doesn't need to be here. God will empower you beyond your sin if you want that empowerment. Amen. Zechariah 12, 8. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem. So that the feeblest among them, yeah, I don't know how feeble you have felt yourself as we are working <laughs> through these remembers, but hear what is said about the feeblest among them. They will be like David. Come on. <laughs> and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And Israel is our older brother and our example. The feeblest among them will become like David himself in David's house. Like God, the angel of the Lord going ahead. Yes. His ability to empower and transform his people 
supersedes their current condition. He will bring them to the goal as they call upon the one that they pierced. And if you do the same, he will transform you as well. Come on. So recapping this slightly. When Samaria was led astray, that was a bad thing. Yeah. When Jerusalem began leading others astray, that was an even worse thing. Calvay Comer. Yeah. When this happens, even with the people of God, he starts referring to the city that he loves as Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Jeremiah and Sodom and Egypt in the book of Revelation. But that is not their final state. They end up being like God. If you don't hear hope in that, then something's wrong. Because these are enemy states of Israel that Israel is being compared to, but that is not what they will be. It's almost like if you could be reconciled even when you were an enemy of God, how much more through the life of His Son will you be saved? Faith has got to rise somewhere in you. Hey, let's pick up in verse 15. All right, I just, I'm going to hit this slightly because we have a lot to go. You are going to hear, and maybe some of you have repeated, that this is Chernobyl because of a strange <laughs> linguistic connection that people make. The Hebrew here for poison water has to do with worm wood. And it just so happens that that particular Slavic language, when they wanted to describe poisonous water, they also used a phrase, Chernobyl, which means wormwood. I want to tell you this has nothing to do with Russia, okay? That should be so painfully obvious. But everybody from Hal Lindsey to teachers that I actually like, they all make this association, and, and it's sad. It detracts from what he is actually saying. Let's read again, I will make them, and start there, and let's, let's engage with what's being said so that we are not prophesying out of our own imaginations. Amen. I will make them eat bitter food and drink poison water, because from the province of Jerusalem, ungodliness is spread throughout the land. I'm pretty sure that a nuclear mistake somewhere in Russia is not because of prophets in, in Jerusalem. Yeah. In fact, the actual connection that is being made here is a reference to the kind of thing that happens with the golden calf. When you engage in idolatry, you are going to have to eat what you built. That's a Moses ground it and made them eat it. When you grumble, God makes sure that you encounter poisonous waters. They're a reflection of your actual soul. And you will have to drink it unless there's a miracle in your soul and in the waters. That is what he's referring to here. All idols in our life end up being something that you have to eat the fruit of. That's true in idolatrous words, idolatrous practices. So the moral to that story is we were made to drink living waters, not poisonous waters. It's why God is taking such time to work ungodliness out of us, out of his sons. He doesn't want us to drink the kind of poisonous waters that some have dipped their toes in. 
What he wants for you is to drink from the river of living waters. He even wants it to become in you a fountain welling up to eternal life. He wants it to overflow to the nations around. And he's always wanted this for his people. Those that will have it, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Those that will not have it, they will eat quail until it comes out of their noses. And both of those groups of people can be in the same church body. It's always been that way. Hey, let's pick up in verse 16. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are saying to you. They fill you with false hope. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. you got to love what's happening here because Jeremiah is a prophet to the nation of Israel. And God's telling Jeremiah, a true prophet, to go and tell them, this about the false prophets that's going on. He's telling them that the visions of the false prophets had their origins in the minds or the imagination of the men who were giving the words. Now that doesn't happen today, does it? No. I dare not say that this has happened where men have gone to prison meetings and they're just thinking about a specific word they shared in the morning and then came and thought, well, I didn't get to share it in prison, so I'm going to come and share it before the church because obviously the Lord gave it to me, right? Because after all, your study is no good unless you get to present it. I mean, it was never for your personal enrichment. It is only for your presentation. <laughs> These false prophets, they had their origins in the imaginations of the men themselves. Didn't come from heaven, didn't come from his word. I want to read to you James 13, or I'm sorry, James 3.15. And James is saying... Such wisdom. Wisdom. Now that's an interesting word that's being thrown around because I hear so many people say, well, I just want to be wise about this. Right? Or they try to twist scripture or any kind of thing to speak to another brother about what is wise. Church, never forget the fear of the Lord is the beginning of true wisdom. But James is saying such wisdom does not come down from heaven but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. If the wisdom didn't come from God's throne, then it's not just bad advice. It's earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. Now, I want to give you a key here because we told you early on in this message that you can stand in the counsel of God. Right? You remember that? Yeah. Say, I can stand in the counsel of God. I want to give you some keys to know whether or not you're actually hearing from God's counsel and that what you're hearing is actually beneficial to the people. So according to Jeremiah, the fruit, because you know a tree by its fruit, right? Sometimes kind of hard to, to know a tree with everything that's going on, but you can tell by its fruit, the fruit of these earthly, unspiritual, and demonic imaginations was that they gave false hopes. That they gave a hope that was not in accordance to God's will, not in accordance with God's word, and not in accordance with the truth of what God was doing. So judgment was coming, and it gave them a false hope that they were okay, didn't need to repent. Now that's an obvious key, right? If what you're getting gives a false hope, then it's not from the counsel of God. The NASB says that it gave these men futility. These words that came out of the mind of man gave futility, vainness. There was no purpose in it. Wow. 
The ESV says vain hopes. The Young's literal translation says that these prophets were prophesying and they were making you vain things. Vanity. So, so, if, so y'all are staring at a screen that is James. What we're actually talking about right now no, is Jeremiah 23 and verse 16. Could you put that on the screen for a second? <clears throat> Here where it says, do not listen to what the prophets are saying to you because they fill you with false hopes. False hopes is the way the NIV says it, and it's what Justin's commenting on. The NASB says they fill you with futility. The ESV says vain hope, and, and the Young's Literal says it in such an interesting way. They make you a vain thing. Yeah, it's really important that we're actually hearing from God or the results can be devastating wow. in our lives, huh? Wow. But contrast that with Psalm 19. These are the words of Yahweh. Uh, listen up to this. This is going to be water to your soul tonight. Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Oh, that's better than futility in your soul. How do you know it's from God's counsel? It brings revival to the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. That's better than becoming a vain thing. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Hallelujah. Oh, man. Yes. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. How many of you consider before you prophesy, is what I'm about to prophesy going to give light to the eyes of the people listening? The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous, holy, and perfect. They are more precious than gold. That ought to be a litmus test right before I prophesy. Is what I'm going to say more precious than gold? Than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned. Not comforted, not coddled, warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Counsel that comes from God, from his throne, is the word of God coming from the word of God. And it offers far better rewards than these kind of things that come from our own imagination. How many of you want a true word from God? You can have it! You're His Son! You can have it! Help us out, Nick. Verse 17, please, Linton. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. They keep saying to those who despise me, who's speaking here? It's the Lord. The Lord's speaking. It's not anybody else. So when me is said, the Lord's talking about himself. And he says, they keep saying to those who despise me. Well, that's what the NIV says. And the Nasby. That's what the Nasby says. But if you look at a couple different translations, say maybe the ESV or Young's Literal, it says, they keep saying to those who despise the word of the Lord. Well, this difference in translation we can certainly go into tonight. We could have explained it. We could have gone into the linguistics of it and all that good stuff. But our response tonight is simply going to be yes. Well, yes, of course. It's the Lord and it's the word of the Lord because those two things 
are absolutely synonymous with one another. Amen. They're the same exact thing. The two lies that are being propagated in this verse, uh, we wanted to make it absolutely clear for you tonight. So listen up. Two different lies being propagated. The first one, hey, man, you're going to have shalom. You're doing great with God. Hey, you don't need to do anything. You're good just the way that you are. You come come to our church just the way that you are and leave the same going out the door. Champion walking in and a chump walking out. <laughs> There's a second one. The second one sounds like this. Hey, my friend, no harm is going to come to you. You do not need to fear judgment. Judgment? No, that's for the chump outside. That's for the guy that's not here. But you, no, you're in the house of God. You don't need to fear the judgment of God. Hey, I'm here to say tonight that these are two of the things that from the initiation, when God stamped his name on this ministry, yeah. these two things have been uh, absolutely turned on their head at LCM. We do not preach a message that says, hey, you're doing fine with God. We preach a challenging message here in this house. Amen. We challenge based on the word of God. Hey, how does your life look based on the standard? And guess what? We are all the better and all the more mature for it. What about the second one? Hey, man, no harm's going to come to you. You don't need to fear judgment. What do you guys know about that? Judgment begins with God's house now. And praise God that his word is permeating our hearts, that he is allowing us to judge our current state, to know where we are right now so that we can get that transformation. Jude is going to walk us through a couple verses that will help us see this. But I want, to, I want to recap for you and tell you what's at stake. What we're actually describing is the slippery slope, according to the word of God, that the man of intrigue uses to not only rise to power, but to get those who would have been in covenant with God, but they don't really fear him, don't really know him, to compromise. And... Do you see them as shockingly prevalent? Yeah. You're, you're doing just, if you're, if you're in church, you're doing great. There's no reason to fear God. I, I hear it every day. Yeah. And it is the thing that brought the judgment of God onto this century of, uh, or this generation of Jeremiah's time. That's, right. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to work through a few of these at a bit of a pace. But we're going to apply them to our current reality. Leviticus 19.15 says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. Since it is not justice to tell people that they're doing great when they aren't, even if they're poor. <laughs> it is not justice to teach people a lesson that God is not to be feared, even if they're rich. Even if they might do good things for your business. Deuteronomy 16, 19. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. It is not justice to tell people that they are doing great when they aren't, no matter how you phrase or twist it. It's not justice to teach people a lesson that they do not need to fear God. Consider what a bribe is, saints. A bribe is not just a stack of cash. 
A bride can come in many forms. It can come in praise at the end of a service. It can come in comforts in your own life. Things that make you more inclined to treat that person, or more pertinently, yourself differently. Proverbs 17, 23. A wicked man accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the course or the outcome of justice. Saints, this is done every day in pulpits. Pulpits that are influenced by praise, comfort, or the ties of people in the congregation. Galatians 1, 6, 9 is something I'm going to read and allow my father to expound upon. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel, from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. Look, Paul was learning from Jeremiah's day the dangers. He had insight into what Jeremiah's day faced, and so he's unyielding. He sees the dangers of small choices. The, The biggest thing that they're facing at the Church of Galatia is what you do on the eighth day of somebody's birth and whether it should be repeated to a Gentile later in life. And look how strongly he speaks about it. Look, you would hate a pastor that you walked up and said, that was the best sermon I ever heard. And he said, really, I think you're the worst Christian I've ever seen. You would hate that. But if it's true, then it needs to be said. You could never build a church in America like that, which makes you question whether it is churches that are being built. What I want to get to is really verse 18. Let's do that. Which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or hear his word? Who has listened? You know what the word for counsel is? So, secret place with God. And this counsel, by the way, you'll notice in English it has a C on it. This is, this is not advice. This is a physical grouping of people. And um, it's important to understand that a lot of people receive counsel from the word, but you don't know if the counsel that you receive from the word, the verbal advice, is correct if you don't stand in the council of God, the actual assembly of heavenly beings. And your sons, you've been chronicling all week the times that God has led you. You can stand in his council. You can know his will for certain. The word is always to be trusted. And you need the spiritual council of God to make sure you are reading and understanding the word correctly. Look, I would say that it's a necessity to have both the canon and the council in your life. I would go so far as to say that the canon with the council is always a cure for what's going on in your life. In other words, the spirit and the word will testify together. One or the other, you might not. It's not that the word or the spirit can't be trusted. You can't trust that you're hearing from them correctly. You need both. It's a triangulation to know where you stand in the world. This is why we want you to chronicle the times that you have heard from God in your life. We want you to see that you can and have courage to do it in the future because we have more transformation ahead of us. Look, 
The true prophet always has to contend with wayward souls of men, always. He also has to compete with the hopes that the false prophets are selling to everybody and the people are too eager to buy. The false prophet is characterized by having his own message, but it is not from the counsel of God. So while he's preaching out of the Bible, yes, so did Satan to Jesus. Satan speaking to the Son of God also preached out of the Bible, but he didn't preach out of the council room of God. Do you understand the difference? Okay. Jeremiah had experiences with the Lord that are pertinent in this verse. In fact, the verse says, but which of them has stood in the council of the Lord to see? And the NIV says, or to hear his word. I want to tell you that the manuscript evidence points to see and hear his word. Jeremiah both saw and heard the word of the Lord. In many ways, that's true of every prophet in the Bible. If you read Genesis 15, you will see in the verse, you'll understand and comprehend from the verse that Abraham saw a vision of the word of the Lord. It has to do with being impacted in all of your senses, seeing and hearing. That's what marked a prophet. And uh, Lamentations 2.14 literally says that the visions of the prophets other than Jeremiah were false and worthless. Do you know how you could know for sure? Because it didn't ward off captivity. A real word that is seen, heard, understood in the actual counsel of God, it will always turn people from sin. That, that is the biggest fruit. And you know what? I think the biggest fruit that we've been taught to look for is one that makes us feel better. That is exactly the slippery path of intrigue. Yeah. Yeah. What we actually need are the ones that force us to consider our direction and turn in the direction of God. It does you no good to hear that you're already a champion, especially if you're not a champion. Look, why don't we do this? Rather than go through all of the times in the word that that occurs, I'd like to put on the screen for you an interlinear because there's a third thing that occurs here that is not evident in English. So, Sound Booth, you're looking for a white slide with lots of Greek letters and numbers on it. There we go. In this interlinear passage, it says, for who hath stood of the, in the counsel of the Lord? That part we all get, right? And hath perceived. You would think that would be done with eyes. That's why it's seen. And heard. That would be with your ears. His word. And who hath marked his word and heard it. I, I simply want to say that the process of hearing from God, it has to do with This is who he is. This is his character. I can see it. It has to do with this is what he says. I can hear it. And you know what your responsibility is? To mark what he has said. To never back up from it. To never move away from what you have seen and heard in the presence of God. Look. That is a a jewel if you're willing to receive it. Our goal is to see his character displayed in the word so that you can compare it with yours. 
Then you hear what the word says. This will tell you what needs to change in you. Then you mark that down. You chronicle it. And you never back away from what he has shown you. That is how you ward off captivity Come in on. your own life. Amen. We're going to see him for who he is. Yeah. Which will help us understand where we are. Then we're going to listen to what he says. That'll tell us what we need to do to be transformed. Then we're going to mark it down. And it becomes your sole focus. Holiness or die trying. Transformation or or nothing. It's go for broke. I will be what God says I am to be. You can't do that sitting around mourning. You can't do that sitting around... uh, I'm a failure. I'm always a failure. All they do is preach about my failure. That will never help you. What will help you is to understand God's character so you rightly see yourself. Come on. To hear his word. And what you're hearing in it is what must be transformed in you. To mark it down so that you can see your own progress through the years. Amen. If you do these remembers right, you know what you are to see? You were a two-year-old. Then you were a seven-year-old. Then you were a 13-year-old. At some point, you started to reach early puberty. That was, that was characterized by not only were you sustaining your life, you were now capable of giving lives to others. And then at some point, being able to manage things around you. Not manage your business. A lot of children can do that. Manage God's business. Come on. Come on. See. When we stand in the counsel of God, it grows us up. When you can chronicle your growth, it's a compelling, securing thing. It says, hey, I I may have been a little stunted for a few minutes, but... I'm about to hit a growth spurt, y'all. There's a heavenly steroid about to enter me, and you're about to see me become strong in battle. You're about to see me. Look, you ever see fat, pudgy little pre-puberty kids, and then six months later they walk in and you're like, yes, sir? Like they're stacked. Okay? You can do that spiritually. It comes from standing in the counsel of God and staying off of that slippery slope of intrigue that just tells you what you want to hear and makes you feel better about yourself while you're headed straight for hell in the house of God. But that's not who we are in here, is it? In here, we're going to get transformation. We're going to see Him. We're going to hear Him. And we're going to mark down what needs to be done. And He will do it in you. Amen. Many of you writing your remembrances, have you looked back and said, man, I wish I marked it down? I know I have. I'm trying to think and remember, and I'm saying I wish I marked it down. Let's make a commitment going forward that we're going to mark it down, and then at the end we're going to see a whole book being written of the epistle of our lives. Linton, pick up in verse 19. See the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. All right, we're going to get into a topic about the storm of the Lord. Hey, this is going to be fun, guys. This is going to allow you to reimagine what the end times looks like. It's going to rock your world. Get ready. (laughs) So we're going to read a bunch of passages. We're going to hand them out. And you're going to see the prophets talking about coming on a storm. You're going to see black clouds, darkness. But the one thing you need to know as we read these passages, that it's the same God all the way through, even though the situation looks like it's bringing reward or recompense. So who wants to read? Nolan, you get Exodus 19, 16 through 17. 
Um, Adam Cora, you're going to get Deuteronomy 33:26. Paul Rosales, you're going to get Judges 5, 4 through 5. JJ, you're going to get 2 Samuel 22, 10 through 12. Hayes, Psalm 68, verse 4. John Dang, Joel 2, 1 through 2. Uh, Tom, Zephaniah 1, 14 through 15. Nick Rosales, Daniel 7, 13. Assad, Matthew 24, 30. Chris Riasora, Matthew 26, 64. And the last but not least, Steve Thomas, Revelation 1, 7. When you get your scripture, read it loudly because the recorder is up here. So at the very inception of the nation of Israel, we see thunder, lightning, and a thick cloud over the mountain. And who was in the storm at the top of the mountain? The Lord Lord was. Let's move to Deuteronomy 33, verse 26. So that you get the connection to Jeremiah, he's promising to come in the storm of the Lord and wrath. But when he came to start the nation, he came in a storm to give them life-giving word. So in the same storm, you can have both death or life, just like in the same book. Deuteronomy 33, 26. All these verses are going to have something to do with storms in Israel's history, whether in the past or potentially storms to come in the future. And where you are depending on your status with the Lord, determines how you see that storm. In Deuteronomy 33, we're talking about the God of Jeshurun. He's defined as the God who rides on the heavens to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. So before we go to Judges 5, I want all of you to close your eyes for three seconds and imagine that storm. One, two, three. Now open up your eyes. How many of you... Uh, we're going to leave that. You keep that storm in the back of your head as we keep going in Judges 5. Verse 4 and 5. O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched out from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Ah, I think you know what kind of clouds they were. They weren't white and fluffy. They weren't lamb-like. They were a dark storm cloud that contained both deliverance for God's people and retribution for his enemies, reward and recompense. Jeremiah is describing the coming of God that will be the deliverance for those who stand in the counsel of God, and it will be the judgment for those who proclaimed that they were in his counsel but never actually were. 2 Samuel 22, 10 through 12. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. 
should be very excited about the coming presence of the Lord if you've been living in his presence. But if you've been hiding from it, it's a very dangerous, scary thing. The storm cloud is both salvation and it is retribution. And Jeremiah has promised that it's on the way. Psalm 68, verse 4. So this is God who rides on the clouds. This is a title of him. He's the cloud rider. He's the one who comes on the storm, either bringing judgment or help, depending on the state of the people. Who's got Joel 2, 1 through 2? The day of the Lord is coming. We're about to hear some descriptors of the day of the Lord. Yeah. It is close at hand. The day of darkness and gloom. Darkness and gloom. The day of clouds and blackness. Clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. I don't know if you were anything like me. But when I used to close my eyes and think about the day of the Lord, I saw bright, shiny, glimmery clouds in yeah. the sky parting and the Lord of all coming down like a, I don't know, 747 and lighting like this. Yeah. That's what I pictured. But this is not the descriptor that we have. We Our descriptors are, it's a day of darkness, it's a day of gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Something like spreading over the mountains as his army is coming forth. You know, if you're wicked and you're looking at that, your first thought is, oh my God, what is about to happen? I know what that is. If you've been living in his presence, you're watching and saying, oh my God. Yeah, daddy's here. Right there. That's my king. That's my general. That's my Lord. And I cannot wait to meet him in the air. Who's got our next verse? Zephaniah 1.14. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. All right, because everyone in this room is learning to stand in the counsel of God, we're going to practice something. Say, Daddy's here. Daddy's here. One more time. Daddy's here. This is supposed to be an awe-inspiring, devastating event, but if you're Jeremiah and you're surrounded by the wicked, it's a glorious day. My dad in all of his fearful glory is showing up, and he's going to deal with you. Daddy's here, baby. Daniel 7, 13. In my vision that night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. For the first time in the word, it does not seem to be the father that is riding the cloud. It seems to be one that looks like a son of man who is also approaching the ancient of days. That's an extraordinary statement about the nature of Messiah. But that's not why we're reading it. We're reading it because we want you to hear how Jesus speaks of coming on the clouds, knowing what you know now. It is a day of salvation, but also a day of wrath. It is a storm cloud that encourages the righteous, but are to scare those that have a false righteousness. 
and think about who it is that Jesus says these things to because he's telling them they're in the days of Jeremiah. Yes. Matthew 24, verse 30. With power and great glory. And they're seeing this. And what is every nation doing? Mourning. mourning. Some of them are mourning because they're looking at the sun. The one that they have pierced. And others are mourning because they are so terrified. They can't escape it. And they want the, the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. To hide them from the one who is coming on the clouds. Matthew 26 verse 64. Yes, it is as you say. This is Jesus speaking, and he is on trial. This is his response to the high priest asking him, Hey, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus looks and he says, Yes, it is as you say. And then his response, But I say to all of you, everybody in this room right here, in the future you will see me. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is calling what will happen. He's standing on trial about to be crucified. But he's saying, hey, when I come back, it's going to be in the greatest victory that you have ever seen. Now, if you were a literate, biblical person hearing those words, wouldn't you have to ask what those clouds meant for you? Yeah. They had him on trial. And he's saying, I am the judge that will show up. You'll find out on the day of gloom and darkness Joel talked about. Revelation 1, 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Amen. So shall it be. Revelation 1, 7 is knitting together Jeremiah's words, Zechariah's words, Ezekiel's words, Daniel's words, all in one saying... He will come and describing the event. So shall it be. Amen for the righteous. Let's pick up in 20 and we're going to keep progressing through the chapter. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes oh. of his heart. Yeah. In days to come, you will understand it clearly. Let's hold there. When you hear in days to come, you might think, oh, man, that's uh, this. This must be in just a few months or a few years. This is a unique Hebrew phrase, and it's where we get all of the study of eschatology from. It's aharit ha-yamim. It's what Daniel said in the latter days, the end of days, the last of days. He is speaking in a double reference. Yes, something is historically going to happen in Jeremiah's time, but that's not actually what he's talking about. He's talking about something that happens in the end of days. When the cloud rider comes, there will be a total understanding of this concept. He said, in the Aharit Hayamim, you will understand it clearly. In other words, you can get away with your slippery slopes of intrigue right now. There's a day coming when I will settle this and the whole world will know. That would make uh, me stand up straight. Yeah. What's verse 21? I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their riches. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. 
Look, this ought to remind everybody of a guy Abimbola loves. Ahimaaz. <laughs> Abimbola loves to preach about Ahimaaz. I have a couple slides to show you. Ahimaaz is running with a message that the Septuagint calls the Evangelion. He believes that it's good news. Just like false prophets always believe they're bringing good news. It's not the good news that comes from the counsel of God, though. It's the kind that originates in the heart and imagination of men. It's the gospel that you would like to hear, not the gospel that you need to hear. I'd like to show you how it shows up in the, in the Bible. In 2 Samuel 18, Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son... Why do you want to go? You do not have any evangelion that will bring you a reward. Can you imagine the day of dark storm clouds when the king of Israel appears and people have been running with a message that he did not send them with and that will bring no reward? Ooh. I want to show you again the extraordinary warning of Galatians 6. If you have a different evangelion, even if you're an angel from heaven, Paul says it's not an evangelion at all. It's not a gospel. What it is is a certificate that guarantees you eternal damnation. Now, how seriously do you think we are to take those words? I would love to preach more on that, but I think that there are a few things that we need to get to in our remaining 24 minutes. So let's pick up in verse 22. So the word here in Hebrew for would have turned them from their evil ways, that word turn is shuv, as in teshuvah. If they would have stood in my counsel and proclaimed my words, then they would have brought repentance to the people from their evil ways. Wow. Church, this is the fruit of the actual word of God, yeah. repentance. The problem is, is that we often think that there are people and sometimes... Uh, some people don't need to repent. That is totally false. Everybody at all times everywhere has something they need to repent from. And every word that is actually from God's counsel brings that repentance about. It leads towards that repentance. So a word from God always has repentance tied to it. Are you all getting it? Yeah. If repentance is not a key factor in any word, then it did not come from the counsel of God. Let's pick up in verse 23. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Isn't that a powerful statement? Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine the Lord God in his booming voice saying, Hey, I fill my presence. It fills the heavens and the earth. You see, the Bible is replete with examples of this very concept. It portrays this regarding the counsel of the Lord. We have three verses for you, and we're going to start in Genesis 28, 16 through 17, and talk about Jacob for a moment. We want you to write these down because you think you know what we're about to say and you don't. <laughs> it says, when Jacob awoke, from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, 
and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. In this example in Genesis 28 with Jacob, it's true. The Lord was already in that place. Jacob was there, and it says that he awoke to something. He awoke to a new revelation. Jacob had to awaken to a truth that God was already there and he had been there. But it was Jacob, he was the one that needed to awaken to that truth. He was the one that needed to gain the awareness to know, hey, God is here. What does that mean for you and me tonight? As we're sitting here in these padded seats, what does it mean when Jacob awakes from his sleep and all of a sudden he gets a revelation, hey, God is here. The very presence of the Lord He's right here with us tonight. Amen. Let's build on that with Isaiah 6, 1, and Judah's going to get that one for us. Isaiah 6, verse 3. This is the angelic being speaking. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Yeah. Thanks, this is where Isaiah receives his commission, and the angelic beings are proclaiming that the earth is Filled with his glory. Huh. Hear let, this in Habakkuk. Let's grab hold of this. The storm coming would bring the end of days where this concept would be clearly understood. Did y'all catch that from Jeremiah? Yeah. Like you can get away with your slippery slope now, but <laughs> there is a day coming when this will be clearly understood. Now let's read Habakkuk 2.14. Uh, I have to read it? Yes. Yeah, I okay. Got it for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What's different about Habakkuk from Isaiah or from Genesis 28? The glory of the Lord was already all over the earth. There in Jeremiah's day, there in everyone's day, always there, but a day would come when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord okay. would cover the earth in the same way that waters wow. cover the sea. In other words, Habakkuk is agreeing with Jeremiah. He's saying there is a day coming when this will be clearly understood. The slippery slope has come to an end. Every person will understand that daddy, he wasn't coming. He's always been here. You're awakening to his presence. You're awakening to your accountability. You are awakening to what it means to be in the hands of a holy God. Come on. Don't you want to awaken to that now? That changes the, the cloud rider coming to a glorious day as Peter described it instead of a dreadful day as Joel described it. See, we have the chance to go into the council room of God now. This means that when you meet with him, it's a glorious reunion because you've been meeting with him. You were never anywhere where he wasn't. But others are going to be incredibly shocked. And this was said to the household of God, not the lost nations. This was said to the priesthood of God, to the prophets of God, to the one nation on earth that was adopted as his sons. Tell me the church doesn't need to hear it. Men like David, 
They've always been aware of this truth. In fact, it caused them to examine their hearts in different ways. Listen to this in Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. What do you think that caused David to say? Look at verse 23 in this psalm. Really hoping we can put it on a screen. There we go. What did it cause David to say? Somebody yell it out. Search me. The awareness that we do not have to wait for the great and dreadful day of the Lord, that his presence is here now, Come on now. that will cause you to say, search me now, Daddy. Yes, Fix it now, did. Daddy. I want to be transformed now, Daddy. All I want is to be like you. Whatever it takes, no more hiding, no more intrigue, no more slippery slope. I must be like you, and you've said that I get to be. Help me. See, that is why David had a heart like God. He was aware of his presence. It's not that he didn't make mistakes. He didn't stay in them. He didn't conceal them. He didn't hide them. He didn't defend them. He asked God to search if there was any other place in him that he could be transformed. That's what we're trying to provoke in you. Could we pick up in verse 25? It gets pretty fun. I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream. I had a dream. <laughs> How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? They think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my name, just as their fathers forgot my name through Baal worship. Let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream. But let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what, for what has straw to his brain, declares the Lord. So you see a couple things in this verse. You see dreams, and then you see God's word. You see straw, and then you see grain. And God's asking, what does straw have to do with grain? We can conclude pretty easily that straw in this passage is dreams, visions, ecstatic experiences. The grain that's being opposed to the straw in this passage is the actual word of God. One, like straw, is not good for anything but for cattle, and grain is good for the people of God and can actually ferment into something and is useful. But it says in this passage, lest you think that one of them is forbidden, neither are forbidden. It says in the passage, let the prophet who has a dream tell it, because the word will prove what is true. So dreams are not forbidden in God's sight. He's saying if you have a dream, tell it, but the word of God will prove if it's a true dream. The truth we can glean from this is that dreams are inferior and subject to the word. The word takes priority over any dream, any ecstatic experience, any vision, any seeing numbers arranged on license plates. The actual word of God (laughs) takes precedent, and the reverse is never true. Never, ever true, church. Your experience never trumps the word. If the word confirms your experience, praise God. But your experience never trumps the word. 
Verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? See, I love dreams. I love prophetic dreams. I love hearing from the Lord at a state where I had nothing to do with it. It was just his goodness. And you know what I love even better than that? When the word of God is shut up in me like fire. When I read God's word and I am so convicted to the core. When I read God's word and I know that I know that I know that I have his direction for the next step. And it is like fire shut up in my bones. Yeah, that's better than any dream that I've ever had. Because the word of God does that. I love that three chapters earlier in chapter 20, it's Jeremiah speaking to the Lord. He's saying, hey, isn't your word like fire shut up in my bones, Lord? And then in chapter 23, the Lord confirms it. He's like, hey, is not my word like fire? Hey, remember when you said that? Yeah, my word is like fire in your bones, declares the Lord. And it's like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. The word of God is not just like fire internally. It's not just something that we feel, fear, feel internally that shakes us up and moves us in the right direction. It's also something that you can see show up in a very external kind of way. It is the very hammer that breaks rocks. Yeah. It is the very thing, the hard surface, that breaks down what is solid that needs to be broken down. The barriers in your way, the word breaks those barriers down. The hard heart that is sitting in front of you, that is in desperate need of counseling, the word of God breaks through that hard, rocky heart. The word is useful both for an internal motivator and also an external excavator to cause the pathway to be cleared and that person to be able to keep moving. Let's continue in verse 30. So we have 10 verses left to get to and we have good things for you. And we're not going to take the time to teach you that Jeremiah's bones were trembling in the opening passage. But I got to tell you, if you really eat the word of God... Ooh. His bones trembling were not a sign of his weakness. There was a holy fire rising in yeah. him over what he saw happening around him. What was verse 30? Therefore, declares the Lord, I am against the prophets who steal from, who steal from one another words, supposedly from me. <laughs> All right, saints. I'm going to briefly work you through some slides to help you understand this. But verse 30, I want to assure you, the Lord is against them. There is stealing going on. And there are words that are being misused. Our first slide comes from the Masoretic. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord. Those who steal my words. You see that capital M? From one another. Our next slide is from the Alex X. A hewing axe beating like rock, or the rock is the prior verse. Behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord. God the one stealing my words, each from his neighbor. Now, saints, this could be a mildly confusing if you don't understand exactly what is happening here. But what God is addressing is that his word is being stolen. There's an opportunity for God's word to be stolen in the hearing of men, his word stolen, every time that there's a false narrative that has been given first. Ooh. Think about this. I'm against the prophet, says the Lord, the one's stealing my words each from his neighbors. They're preventing their ability to hear the real word of God that they need by giving a false word first. 
like some kind of coronavirus inoculation. The idea that it is there to keep you from experiencing the real thing. Saints, this happens in the Christian community all too often. We have these echo chambers that are resounding the things that we want to hear. Wrong ideas that have been propagated. Now, you've witnessed this in the last year with Corona. It is loving your neighbor to not attend church. And that gets prophesied, gets stated, and resounds and resounds and resounds. And it prevents people from hearing what the Word of God actually says. Because they think they already know. And everybody else they know is saying the same thing. I'm going to just hit it again. Everybody who thought Trump was God's man and God had prophesied that he'd have another term, where are they now? Okay. But the echo chamber does its work and people cannot actually hear from God because they're hearing stealing words from the false prophets. And why are they not held accountable? <laughs> because people participated with them. That's not the only way a word can be stolen, though. Word can also be stolen by taking a real, accurate truth from the Lord and twisting it for your own purpose. We just gave an example of Satan earlier who took a real word that was written in the scripture but twisted it to his own liking to fit the circumstances that he wanted. That steals your opportunity to rightly apply the real word of God. A word can also be stolen even when spoken accurately. Because you heard it incorrectly due to poor soil in your heart. Now, saints, we don't have time this evening to cover the parable of the four soils. But I think if you spend a little time meditating on it, you'll see some strong parallels. The seed, the word of God, is the same in every case. But there are things that are corrupting, stealing, twisting, and choking out the real counsel of God. It is our job to identify those enemies and remove them. That's right. Amen. Hey, let's pick up in 31 and go through 32. Yes, declares the Lord. I am against the prophets who wag their own tongues and yet declare. The Lord declares. Indeed, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. They tell them and lead my people astray with their reckless lies. Yet I did not send or appoint them. They do not benefit these people in the least, declares the Lord. Did you hear that the things were reckless lies? And what were they? Hey, you're going to have shalom. And there's no need, really, to fear judgment of God. He wouldn't do that to you. You already belong to him. That's what God calls a reckless lie. Look, every tree is known by its fruit, and we ought to have words that actually cause repentance. We're going to flash something on the screen from Malachi 2, 5 through 7. You've seen it before. These are the things that priests do. There's something that I'm dying to get to, and we have, like, seven minutes. So let's read verse 33. Now, this may not strike you as immediately funny. I want to assure you, it's very funny. <laughs> In Hebrew, there's a pun here. The word masa, it means oracle-like prophet. And when it's pronounced with a little different accent, it means uh, a burden that is lifted up. So the word burden and oracle are homonyms in Hebrew. To help you understand that, it's like saying, hey, what is the concern of the Lord? Hey, Jeremiah, you tell them, what concern? I've already forsaken you. <laughs> to put it another way, like, like to put it in a millennial sense, this is like a pastor who's working really hard and he's burdened for someone, and that person shows up and says, hey, pastor, why do you look so burdened? And the pastor looks at him and responds, 
I'm no longer burdened because you're leaving. Okay? That's, that's, what, that's what God said to say to these people. Hey, what's the burden of the Lord? Oh, I don't have a burden. You're already forsaken. He was burdened, and now God's made his decision, and there's no reason for a burden for them anymore. Their fate is sealed. That's incredible, huh? How long will you mourn for Saul? Hey, let's pick up in verse 34. If a prophet or a priest or anyone else claims this is the oracle of the Lord, I will punish that man and his household. you got to love God's humor here. The oracle has already been issued. You're forsaken. The oracle has already been told to the people, and yet, if anyone else, a prophet or a priest, a priest claims this is the oracle of the Lord, God's going to punish them. The oracle's already been issued, so further seeking only promotes error. Why do you need to further seek from a priest or a prophet if God already said what is going to happen? What this shows us is that these priests or prophets who begin to say this is the oracle, even though God's spoken already, this is bad leadership, and this is causing the whole household of Israel to be punished. The fact that these men are there giving a different oracle is the proof of God's punishment. But you know the same thing is true in our households. As fathers, as mothers, when we have a different oracle to offer than the one that God has already said, like, hey, child, you'll be judged if you do this. And then you go back and say, no, you won't be judged, it's okay. That's what leads for the household to be punished, going back on what God already said. This is true of kings with nations. This is true of pastors with churches. And this is true of parents with children. Right leadership is taking the oracle, the burden that God has already given, and applying it in your life rightly. Mom, Dad says that I'm going to get a spanking. What do you say? I say the decision's already been issued. Yeah? That's essentially what God's telling this nation. Verse 35. This is what each of you keeps on saying to his friend or relative. What is the Lord's answer? Or what has the Lord spoken? Can you, can you hear in those scriptures just the way that people are so insecure? Like, hey, hey, do you, do you have it? Hey, do you have it? What, what is it? What's the word on the street, man? Serious case of FOMO in these scriptures right here. What'd you get in your prophecy inbox? Did anybody get a good word from one of the internet prophets? Could you just forward it to me, please? I was looking for something. It's almost like there's a sensation that people get for just a new word. Not to hold on to the word that the Lord's already spoken to them, but to actually just get that little sensation like, oh yeah, I heard the Lord's voice again. Oh, yeah, I got something new. Oh, yeah, I have a new direction. You know that feeling that you feel when you get that? Yeah, but what about what the Lord's already said? Finish out 36 for us, Linton. But you must not mention the oracle of the Lord again, because every man's own word becomes his oracle. And so you distort the words of the living God, the Lord Almighty, our God. See, everybody claims to be looking for the will of God. Everybody says, man, I'm just trying to do God's will. Just trying to do what he says. But hasn't his will already been made plain? Hasn't he already spoken? Hasn't he spoken in a way that is definitive? Aren't there things that the Lord has spoken to each one of us that we need to grab a hold of again? Don't you guys have those in your life? We need to stop being uh, entertained. By new sensual feelings. And we need to be grounded 
in the things that the Lord has spoken already. If we're just going for the next new thing, then what he's already spoken, it becomes distorted in our lives. Mm. The word that he already told us to stand on, it becomes distorted because we want something different. We want a change in scenery. We want a change of devotion. It's just too hard to do. And we circumvent the process that is ours. The most unstable thing that you'll ever see is in the charismatic community. God told me nine different ways that this was his will. But now I don't like it, so I'm looking for a new word. And I can't say that I sin, so I have to act like it's just a new season. You know? These lead to the worst distortions uh, of the truth. And it, it is what God is saying. Don't ask for a new oracle. The oracle's already been said. And if you keep saying in my name that this oracle is delivered, then uh, your judgment's going to be more harsh. I can't think of anything that should be said to the charismatic world more than that. Yeah. Let's continue in verse 37, and let's read all the way to the end of the chapter. This is what you keep saying to a prophet. What is the Lord's answer to you? Or what is the Lord spoken? Although you claim, this is the oracle of the Lord, this is what the Lord says, you use the words, this is the oracle of the Lord, even though I told you that you must not claim this is the oracle of the Lord. <laughs> Therefore, I will surely forget you and cast you I out didn't of lie. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> Therefore, I will cast you out of my presence along with the city that I gave to you and your fathers. I will bring upon you everlasting disgrace, everlasting shame that would not be forgotten. Saints, in this moment, there are things that are intensely heavy that are falling on the people. But it's because they chose to shop rather than to stand on what God had spoken. Said, I told you to stop doing this. And more than that, to stop doing it in my name. <laughs> the writings were intended for, to teach us how to walk out the word and commands of God. I challenge you to work through the New Testament epistles and let me know where you find something. That is not about handling the word that was already spoken well. I want to remind you that God brought you here so that you might handle the word of truth well. You weren't brought here to fail. You weren't brought here to find a new word. You weren't brought here to shop around. You were brought here to handle the word that was already spoken with seriousness, with power, for it to become your life, and you can stand in the counsel of God. You can do it with strength, with courage, with confidence in the Father who taught you how to hear from him, who taught you how to stand in his counsel room. Right now, we want everything else to pass away. We're being secured as sons, gaining insight from Jeremiah's life so that you can have the right word for the right time. I think if they had just remembered what God had already said. I think if they had just reflected on the day that as a nation they stood in his presence. I think if they had just reflected on what their old slavery had been like. If they just reflected on what God did to all of that old slavery. Maybe even they celebrated it on a Sabbath. 
And then they began to reflect on all of the powerful ways that he had led them up to that point. I bet they would not have embraced false prophecies in strange new words. I bet they simply would have cried out for transformation and known that whatever came from their father's hand was for their benefit and that all he was doing was perfecting them. I know that to be the case because I've watched it for 28 years in Christianity. It's the difference between those that survive and thrive in the presence of God and those that are a blight on the body of Christ, running from church to church, creating the same havoc in every church they go to. We have been given the awesome task of seeing you mature and grow into the men and women that God has called you to be. And there's not one calling in here that's complete yet. There's not one person in here that has obtained the fullness of Christ yet. Which means we all still have room to be transformed. Room to grow. And we get to. Do you know how beautiful that is? If you don't like your state right now, He can change it. He wants to. If you don't like what your life has produced up to this point, it can be different starting right now. You are not orphans and you are not illegitimate children. He has led you all the way up to this point. And he will lead you into the perfection that is ours in Christ if that's what you want. But you got to want that more than you want justification. You have to want that more than the feelings of injustice that get coddled and nursed in here. You have to want that more than you want your own life. And he will do it. He keeps bringing people in here that in a couple years, shoot forward in maturity. You know what that's intended to do for those of you that have been here many years? Tell you it can be done. And you can mourn all the lost years if you want. Or you could just be transformed now. Let's stand to our feet and ask for transformation.